1: Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine Miller-Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine Miller-Karras. Welcome to
0: Resiliency Within. I'm your host, Elaine Miller-Karras. Today's show will explore how we create safer and supportive schools in light of the violence that is plaguing our society. The last few weeks in America has seen more mass shootings than I would like to count. So in the U.S., the 19 children that were murdered in Uvalde now are tragically added to the 4,357 American children from the ages of 1 to 19 who died from gun violence in 2020. After every mass shooting, the dialogue is the same. The themes run fast and furious, gun control, the internet, mental illness. How did this happen? Why did he do it? What can we do to stop the subterranean secret life of the web that spews hate, adding fuel to disturbed and distorted thinking? While mass shootings grab our attention momentarily, gunfire takes the lives of more children and teens every year. Than Parkland, Sandy Hook, Uvalde, and Columbine massacres combined. Janae Luttrell, the Deputy Superintendent of Educational Services at San Mateo County Office of Education, is my guest today, along with Michael Sapp, the CEO of the Trauma Resource Institute. And they're going to help us understand this issue today and how to create um, safer environments in our children, how to protect them, how to talk to them. And I want to tell you a little bit about Janae. She has more than 25 years of experience as an innovative school counselor and administrator. She started her career in education working at Santana High School in San Diego County, where she developed the district's first family resource center to respond to a deadly shooting in 2001. Her professional experience has included leadership roles at the school's day district office, and county offices of education. She has overseen school and district mental health, social-emotional learning, and comprehensive risk prevention programs that have improved behavioral educational outcomes for students. She is a recognized expert in the area of school climate and social-emotional learning and developed an award-winning social justice student-centered leadership program called Camp Lead, Leadership for Equity and Diversity. She is recognized nationally for her expertise in combating human trafficking within the public school system. She regularly trains educators, law enforcement, personnel, and social service providers around the nation, raising awareness on the issues of trafficking in schools. And she developed the first educator protocol to address human trafficking in schools in 2009. This protocol has been used as a model for numerous school districts across the U.S. And she's authored Human Trafficking in American Schools, an Educator's Guide, That was published by the US Department of Education in 2015. Now, Michael Sapp is the CEO of the Trauma Resource Institute and a clinical psychologist with years of experience treating trauma and bringing the community resiliency model and the trauma resiliency model to disasters worldwide. He's responded and helped survivors of mass shootings during the terrorist attack in San Bernardino County and the shootings in Las Vegas. He's also the father of two teenage boys also grappling with talking to his children about these issues right now. So welcome, both of you. I feel so honored that both of you are joining me today. It has been a tough few weeks. And I know that after Uvalde, my my daughter called me in tears, and she was really crying for the children and the teachers and the families that had lost their loved ones. And I have to say, we were kind of crying for ourselves too because we felt a great sense of unease because her five-year-old daughter was at school. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we want her to be safe. Mm -hmm. So I am just hoping that you both can illuminate for us a little bit about this issue right now and help all of us who are trying to grapple with that. So, Janae, as we get started, um, I just want you to say what's ever on your mind right now as you've listened to that introduction and what we're going to be talking about today.
2: Good morning, or I'm sorry, good afternoon, actually, Elaine. Yes. Um, it's a pleasure to be here today, and I just want to thank you for ha- holding a space for us to have this important conversation. I really resonated with your segue to um, introducing me as a speaker. I'm also a grandmother. Um, in addition to being a lifelong educator, I have two daughters that are elementary school um, teachers, and, you know, you just described where coming off some very painful couple of weeks. And I would say that that also is coming at the end of probably one of the hardest years in education. Um, And unfortunately, as you described in my bio, this is work that's, we've had violence in schools for decades and it continues. And the dynamics that our young people are experiencing, and in turn, the adults that work with the young people, our teachers, our administrators, our social workers, our counselors, and of course, their families are all impacted. So I appreciate you
0: having this conversation today, and I'm honored to be here. Well, thank you so much. And, and, and Michael Sapp, you've been on the show before. Is there anything that you want to say right now as, as a, the CEO of Tribe? And I know there's a lot that you've been thinking about regarding being the fathers of two teenage boys.
3: Yeah, no, and I appreciate that because I think that my response, it's hard to uh, separate my responses that, you know, I, as the CEO of, of the Trauma Resource Institute, but also as a father, I, I found myself in the wake of this most recent shooting, was, which was on the tail end of other shootings within a week, That um, so, so that this consistent reminder of gun violence I just remembered the word that kept coming to my mind and the, the sense that I kept getting was that of mourning, that of grief. Um, and yes, there's anger and all sorts of things that also are, are there with me, but the, the, it was the grief that I felt the most strong. And I think part of that was not only for uh, those in those communities that were victims of that, but also for the people who survive that And knowing that that also is going to be something that they're going to have to wrestle with. It's also grief for me of, like, I, like you said, Elaine, I, I have two boys and one is 18. And so to hear the profile of some of the shooters recently, I'm looking at my own son going, my goodness, what, what is going on? And, and as a dad, you know, am I blind to certain things? Am I doing enough? Am I, you know, there's all of those questions for me as a parent as well. And so not only as are we doing enough as an organization, what, what can we do as an organization, but also me personally, what can I do as a, as a, as a father? What can I do as, yeah. as an adult in a community?
0: I think that was part of my my vista as well as like what can we do. Yeah. I'm not a person who likes to feel helpless, yeah. and there is a certain quality of helplessness that that has you know crossed my mind during this. And so I want to turn this over to Jeanne because you know you started responding to this in 2001. I imagine you have learned a lot from that first experience and what's happened since. So I am just going to turn the kind of an open-ended question: What are the things that you've learned that you think are really important for all of us as Individuals as members of society, as having people that we love work for schools and our children, our precious children, that of course we want to keep as safe as possible.
2: You know, I, I would like to approach this in a couple different um, uh, ways, if you'll allow. One, as I think about our school settings and I think about the families and guardians that send their children to our classrooms each and every day, we are we are uniquely positioned and uniquely responsible for taking the little students that show up in our class with all of their dreams and aspirations and all of their talents and all of their potential and to really maximize that. And in, in order to do that, I also wanna just you know articulate that we, we in education sometimes for, I don't even know where it came to be, but for whatever reason in our society, there became a division right? The schools are over here. The community is somewhat connected to the schools, but not always. And we have this otherness that tends to kind of permeate our thinking. And we put a lot of blame on the systems, right? And I I also, having worked in many systems, I want to describe that our systems, you know, whether it's education or other youth-serving entities, our nonprofit agencies, our um, you know, our child and family services, all the folks that exist, both governmental and non-governmental that get up every morning and to serve a mission, to serve our young people and families, we oftentimes are alienated from each other. And, you know, we have system gaps. Oftentimes, um, one of the biggest learnings out of Santana High School, but this is true for the Virginia Tech shooting, and this is true for so many shootings, is in retrospect, you will have folks come forward and describe What we would call as red flags or we would, you know, in retrospect or hindsight, there are indicators that some folks were able to see. Some folks even had maybe insight to potential violence, but oftentimes they didn't know where to go whether that was a family member or somebody in a school system or somebody, you know, connected to a religious or faith institution or whomever that was. And that is what I would describe as probably the biggest need from the community, from the society perspective, that there's this otherness. It's somebody else's job. And I'm sure going to sit here and be critical of them not doing their job that I've never done. Um, But we also have, you know, very cumbersome laws policies protocols um where we often default to not sharing right so in the virginia tech report they came out with incredible findings that many folks saw red flags but they didn't know within their professional standards where they could break confidentiality, not to harm the person of concern in a negative way, um, but in a way of support and to bring other folks that might have resources or have strong relationships to be able to interrupt this negative trajectory. And so I would say that there's a fundamental gap in both this recognition of it's we're all in it. If there is violence happening in Ukraine, it impacts us here in whatever, you know, school we're residing in, in California. If there's violence happening in Buffalo, New York, and it's racially based, which we saw, that impacts my students of all ethnicities, of our all of our teachers. And, you know, one of the things I learned when I went through your training, Elaine, years ago was, you know, a dysregulated adult cannot help regulate a, a dysregulated student. So in other words, when we're living in an environment where violence is just permeating, all All the, you know, from the national, the international to the national to the community level. And then we're set to show up to teach whatever lesson we have that day with the students and their little nervous systems impacted by the, you know, the same news we are, and we don't have a way to interrupt and and really help young people tap into their resiliency, but also help the adults, then we're not we're not taking the science and we're not taking the learning to, to really do what we can to support. The dedicated professionals the families that care so deeply and who deserve just like you and, and myself to have our grandchildren come home safely to have our
0: children come home safely well and let me ask you this you've mentioned a couple of things that i want to you know see if we can talk a little bit more about so about a threat a threat assessment protocol. Mm-hmm. How can we create let's say system-wide county-wide orchestrated threat assessment protocols that can really positively impact school safety? So if there is that child that mm-hmm. let's say the the minister at this church goes, "Ah, oh, I'm a little concerned about him." Mm-hmm. So maybe they talk to the parents and the parents go, "I've been concerned about him too." Where do the parents go? I mean, I can just see the system-wide and then going, "I don't know, maybe and Maybe the parents believe in mental health counseling and they may not believe in mental right. health counseling. Right. And so the school oftentimes is then the repository, right mm-hmm. of a child that's having struggles. and then but then what do you do even if you know about it? So can you talk a little bit more about that and the, this threat assessment sure. protocol?
2: Sure. So there's a lot of communities across the nation that have developed comprehensive threat assessment teams. And we've heard a lot about those teams as best practices. We heard that coming out of Parkland. And I'm I'm excited to share for us in San Mateo County, in about 2017, 2018, we went up to Salem, Oregon, and we had a chance to work with the team there that had done comprehensive threat assessment teams since the Columbine shooting. So late 1990s. Um, and really there is research, um, you know, the research around pro, uh, shooters and violence in school continues mm-hmm. to evolve, but there are as, as, you know, indicators. And I can tell you our classroom teachers have the best gut instincts, you know, and we need to support them to have the, the capacity to, you know, lean in when a student is representing or, you know, is showing up with some need. And all of our systems needed to make sure we're working through an equity lens, make sure we're not bringing bias or prejudice to this conversation, but we're really bringing a
0: research-based perspective. Can I just ask you, Posh, for just a second? People may not know what an equity lens is. Can you just describe that a little bit and then please continue?
2: Sure. So when I when I'm talking about an equity lens, it's really for us to look at the fact that we have um, children in our schools, families in our communities, and we have historical inequitable dynamics that have existed. And out of those inequitable dynamics, we have negative consequences today. We have, you know, communities that have been redlined and historically those communities that were redlined and folks from all ethnicities were not allowed to purchase there they were excluded from opportunities. And often those communities had the better schools. And even to this day, the ways in which our schools are funded are connected to our property taxes. And so there's deep systemic racial bias and discrimination that's that came decades ago and we're still seeing the inequitable outcomes in our school settings but there's also folks in the in you know all professions and all of us we need to be willing to recognize our biases and our prejudices i can tell you when i was a school administrator sometimes i'd have a teacher come in and and have an uneasiness about their student and i would have them to describe the behaviors right and so often we're watching tv and media that kind of puts a stereotype in our head of who is a violent perpetrator. And oftentimes that doesn't match what the research says. So we have to really be willing to interrupt misconceptions in our own, in our thinking. Um, And so with that being said, we look through the research and we train school folks, probation folks, child welfare folks, all the folks around um, youth serving entities
0: of what are those risk factors? So could you, I think we need to know what those are because we were talking in the pre-show when we were getting ready to start about, there's been a lot of talk about um, children that are neurodiverse. We used to call these kids autistic kids, right? And Mm -hmm. we're we're expanding our our languaging about this. And so, and then we go, are we going to perpetuate think, oh, well, it's neurodiverse children that end up you know, perpetrating violence. And we know that's not true. Right. So could you address a little bit about what the actual science tells us?
2: Yeah. The actual science suggests, and this is really, really important for us to recall to remember is that when students are excluded, when actually any human is excluded, is isolated, that is so painful. And when you're thinking about young children and their developmental needs, they're just so desiring and so deserving to be accepted and be welcomed and be celebrated for who they are in all forms of who they are and that doesn't always happen and so sometimes you see traditional bullying you can also see different forms of isolation that doesn't necessarily meet the ed code definition of bullying but exclusion and isolation is one of the most painful experiences young people uh, you know again for anybody but when we're talking about young people in the school setting that's a huge risk factor if somebody doesn't feel welcomed if somebody feels targeted and they're unable to necessarily get their developmental needs met, um, that's something that we all need to be committed to interrupting and supporting that young person.
0: You know, I was, you know, I I have a Facebook page like many people do, and there was a a story that came that was sent to me by Inez Tiger, who is a licensed marriage family therapist and a school counselor in Los Angeles, and it was about a story of a teacher. Who after Columbine started asking her students every Friday who they wanted to sit next to? It's called Chase's Teacher. Have you seen that? Yes. Uh But anyway, I I love that because the teacher basically asked four questions to the kids Who would you like to sit next to? Um, I guess, and then another question was Who would you name as citizen of, of the week? But basically, the questions that she asked were about getting to the kids, not that they would get to sit next to the kid that they wanted to, and the kids knew that but who were the kids that were being excluded? Mm -hmm. Because maybe it's obvious, but maybe it's not. Because I think the other question was, who was a kid that everybody wanted to sit next to and then was never mentioned again? So what was happening to that child? Mm -hmm. Maybe there was something happening at school. Mm -hmm. So could you talk a little bit about that? Because I think how we identify children um, in order to be able to embrace them and provide them the things that they're not getting and to include them seems to be probably an integral part of what we're talking about. It's a fundamental part. I mean,
2: connection is what we all need, right? And in order to feel connected to your learning environment so you can thrive academically and behaviorally and socially, you have to feel like you're being seen. And for who you are, you're welcomed and you're not targeted and you're not mistreated or Picked on just because of how you're showing up, in, in and and it could be because you're neurodiverse, or it could be because you're not wearing the clothes that everybody is, you know, expected to wear, or it could be a variety of different. I mean, we we know the whole spectrum. But I do want to talk, you know, what you were describing, that in the classroom setting, there are ways in which we can systematically, even informally, in a pretty low level, right? It doesn't have to be a big software. It's just creating a space where community is our number one value and our number one commitment, that we're all community members first. So we're all learners, but in a community, and in this community we are welcoming we are respectful we are inclusive and when you see somebody that that's not part of that their experience actively interrupting it actively working to build it and you know you had asked about threat assessments as as we rolled out our threat assessment process we trained all of the schools in, in our in our county so we're talking san mateo county there's 23 school districts we trained all of the schools on how to run a level one so if you have a student that might be rep, you know re- presenting with some concern maybe they did a social media posting maybe they wrote an essay in their english class and you're not really sure if it was fictional or if there might be some real you know fantasy around causing harm there's this robust research-based way to explore what are the risk factors and what are the protective factors. Well, this number one protective factor that research shows time and time again is feeling connected. And so, regardless of what we're tra- negative consequence, whether it's violence or, as you mentioned, I also work in um, human trafficking prevention or drug and alcohol—just all of the negative um, elements that we try to prevent our young people. And, and, you know, you've probably heard, too, through the pandemic that suicidal ideation has also shut up, you know. Um, So we know that our young people are at greater risk for a variety of negative outcomes. And we have to we can't just be happy that we got through another day without violence. That's that's a huge accomplishment. That's what that's what our goal is. But we have to actively build that community and actively bring social positive environments so
0: that we are less likely to have violence tomorrow. Well, I'm thinking we have to build. And when you talk about community, I'm just thinking, like you said early on, that we're just coming out of the the two years of not having school in the way that we used to have school. Mm -hmm. And schools do create community. I think schools sometimes go far and beyond other kinds of social enterprises that build community. And that kids are coming back to the classroom you know, sometimes pretty upset, dysregulated, not connected and having to reconnect after being disconnected. So I don't know if you can talk a little bit about that. I've certainly observed that in a, in, you know, in my, I'm not, I don't live in schools, but talk to a lot of people that are in schools and Mm -hmm. they tell me that they're seeing this.
2: Yeah. I I do want to applaud both the federal government and the state of California for recognizing that getting back to life post-pandemic is going to require a lot of active social emotional learning work, a lot of mental health supports, a lot of community building. And so I really am grateful that there are additional funds that came to schools to do this work. And I also want to recognize that we are bringing funds to schools that are exhausted, to professionals that are exhausted, you know, to classroom teachers that are just barely making it at times. And again, I'm, you know, I'm speaking as both a professional and the mother of a uh, second grade and fourth grade teachers. Um, you know, when my daughter showed up to school the day after Uvalde, they both were texting me in the morning saying, you know, one of them teaches fourth grade. That was the class that was, you know, decimated in Uvalde and, and she was supposed to show up and, you know, and do her lesson. And so I do want to say that we also can't forget the adults, We cannot forget the caregivers. We can't forget the classroom teachers, the paraeducator, the lunchroom, uh, you know, the janitor, everybody that's around kids, the healthier and happier that they are, the healthier and happier our students are. And the more skills they have to describe their emotions and take care of themselves, the modeling and the, um, the ability to show up with their human self really helps the young person, regardless of the age, do the same.
0: Well, so in how you've orchestrated bringing, you know, the uh, concepts of safer school into San Mateo County, um, how have you done that in terms of, yes, we need to support the kids, Mm -hmm. but also the teachers and everyone in the school district. And of course, we can't leave out the parents. I mean, it's really, we're talking about the whole community. So are there some ideas that we can start talking about? We're going to take a break in a little bit Mm -hmm. too, and we can continue discussing this after our break. But what are some of the concrete things that are being done that if people are from other parts of the world, the country, they might start to conceptualize some of these ideas themselves?
2: So you had already mentioned we do have a comprehensive threat assessment process. We have a level two team that meets once a week, and that includes legal counsels, school officials, um representatives from all different nonprofits and we review cases and our whole focus as a threat assessment team is to steer young people away from the juvenile justice system. So while we're keeping our school setting safe, it's not to take these young people who are you know um, leaking as, as the research would call leaking or have a red flag that there potentially could be violence and then just you know, put them in a, in a jail cell where they're isolated and alienated, <laughs> that we, we we know that that would not get us where we need to go. What we know is that we need to factor in the protective factors and bring in strengths-based approaches to support these young people. So I would say the threat assessment. We have a suicide prevention protocol that we've rolled out to all of our, su- our schools. What are the risk factors? What do you do when you have a student of concern? We also have developed a human trafficking protocol and train all of our educators when you see the red flags and what do you do when you're concerned about a student? What steps do you take? We also have developed I was saying earlier about sometimes our agencies don't know how to communicate. We have an information sharing agreement. So if you're somebody in a school setting and you're curious about what's going on with one of your students and that student might also be on probation, we have a way that those two professionals can respect confidentiality, but share information so they can work as a team to support those young people. So we've developed a variety of different, we call them safety nets. And we keep strengthening and building more and more safety nets Um, You know, I think whenever we're talking about this type of violence, we also need to talk about access. There are more guns in the US than there are people. And so our young people live in homes, oftentimes where there's weapons or they have access through other avenues. And if you're somebody who's in distress, and you're in pain, and you have access to means that sometimes becomes more and more of a viable option for people
0: in pain. So you're really talking about a system-wide approach that really looks at everything. But I mean, I think these, these threat assessment teams mm-hmm. seem to be critical mm-hmm. because then if you identify a child, then you can put supports in. I mean, this could avoid the child being incarcerated for the rest of this child's life. So I think, you know, I would love to hear when we get back from the break a little bit more about some of the concrete things. Also, I know that you've been a very big advocate of social emotional learning and how that may play into the some of the prevention strategies. But I'm really interested in, well, you know, what do you how do you give the skills to the janitor, to the to the receptionist, to the cafeteria workers? Because I know many kids whose meaningful relationships Yes, they were with the teachers, but sometimes that school janitor—that that's the go-to person, right? Coaches, exactly, and coaches, and, coaches yeah. and all the different people that come together to care for our kids. So we're going to be back in just a in just a couple minutes, and we're going to continue this conversation um, with um, with Janae. Of course, we're going to bring you, Mike, into the conversation as well. But but Mike and I knew that Janae was the person that we really wanted to hear, and we're going to have him talk a little bit about being the dad of two boys and and how that fits into what Janae is sharing with us. Because I think he probably. Is one of these parents that is very active, that has helped make strong children that are um, going to contribute to the world in really healthy ways. And I think we could we we need more more Ma- Mike Saps in the world too who are dads. So we'll talk more about that. Well, so we'll be back in just a couple minutes and continue our conversation with Janae Luttrell from the San Mateo County School District and Michael Sapp from the Trauma Resource Institute. Become
3: our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Trauma Resource Institute is a
0: nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to
4: recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine Miller-Kerris' book, Building Resiliency to Trauma. The trauma and community resiliency models is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at Elaine at Resiliency Within.com. Elaine Miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed The Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at TraumaResourceInstitute.com. That's TraumaResourceInstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
0: from the County um, of San Mateo Office of Education, and also Dr. Michael Sapp from the Trauma Resource Institute. And we were having a discussion today about how to keep our schools safer, how to help our children, our teachers, our parents with the, in light of, and sadly, the violence that is plaguing our society right now. And so we were just talking um, with Janae about some of the implementation ideas and um, during the break, and I really want, you, you know, this is important because Mike and I live in a similar community. His kids go to the Claremont Unified School District as my granddaughter does. And we both were going, I wonder if there's a threat assessment team. And we're not sure. So we're going to find that out. But, and you were saying to us, today that it's it, it's not mandated. Could you talk a little bit more about, about that?
2: Sure. So, um, as I was just describing in our threat assessment team, we're fortunate. And let me just push pause for a second. Um, You know, we're all familiar with the the Newtown school tragedy as well. And um, that happened in 2012. And our community in San Mateo County at that time said, this cannot, we cannot be Newtown. Not that Newtown was uniquely different than us. We could have been a Newtown. Anybody can be. And we just see that with Uvalde, correct? So... We did a a large community uh, forum called um, Beyond Newtown, and we brought together hundreds of stakeholders from the community, and we said, Beyond Newtown, what are we going to do? And that's really what launched us into those safety networks that I was describing earlier. And that's where we as a community said, we're going to do this threat assessment process. But we're fortunate that more and more schools are raising their hand and are identifying that there is a need for a system. But in order for a threat assessment process to work with fidelity, it cannot be done in isolation. You need your mental health partners. You need the expertise from the various professions to be at the table because holistically, we need to look at this issue with our lens of, of expertise. And we have to be willing to roll up our sleeves and invest the time and energy. So unfortunately, that's not it. Not every community has the resources. Not everybody has the political will to do it. I hope that we get to a point where it's not only mandated because you know we see lots of things that are mandated, but then they're not done with fidelity. I really hope we have that community will where we all want to come together to to wrap around our young people, to wrap around our schools, to keep everyone safe and that more and more folks will say, yeah, we want to do this, and we're willing to dedicate the hours it takes to do it well.
0: Now, I'm also curious. I've seen in our own community, we have a pretty active faith-based community, um, an ecumenical faith-based community. Have the faith-based communities been involved in the threat assessment teams as well? No, they haven't.
2: We, at this time, have only brought in systems because we're talking about highly confidential information. We're talking about, you know, real private information that we really want to honor and be respectful of. And so we know that our faith partners and we know that there's a lot of community partners that would be willing to be great allies in this work. But at the table is probably the most appropriate to have professionals that, you know, are connected to entities that this is our scope of knowledge. But the when we think about, to your point, Elaine, when we think about First, we look at the risk of a young person in our threat assessment team. But more importantly, we look at the protective factors. So when we see the concerns, maybe, again, maybe it's a social media posting, or maybe it's somebody who reported that this young person, you know, again, wrote an essay or drew a picture when we look at the risk that's looking that's presented in that young person's life, we then flip it and talk about the protective factors. What are what are present in that young person's life that we also know research would suggest? So, what caring adults are they connected to? To your to your point earlier yes, about this. Yes. What um, interests do they have? And and we're talking back to Dr. Emmy Warner's work from the 1950s. And you know, here we are in a resiliency show. So we're talking about who are those meaningful uh, relationships? Where are those um, opportunities that are important for that young person? And then we try to maximize that. So if it's something, if they have a real interest in this, but maybe their family doesn't have the resource to, to, to get that student connected over the summer, then we will activate other partners. That would be a time that we might say, yeah, this family is really actively or, or the student used to be really connected to their faith community. And it used to be something and that might be some time that we would tap into an extended partner such as our faith partners to, to support
0: a family. So you're, you are developing that, but it's a different it's a different thing to have them at the table than to right. have them as allies in the right. larger community. Right. And that's why you're talking about a community system approach. Exactly. Now, I want to, I want to come back to Mike. Cause Mike, you know, one of the things I've often admired about you is that I know that you, you know, you're a man of faith. You're a man that has grown two young men. I know them both and know them to be fine young people. And I'm just wondering what are some of the things that have been important to you as a father? to, to share with your sons and how you have grown them to be the fine young men that they are? Wow. Um, I know just a little <clears throat> question. <laughs> of <course>. Well, first,
3: <laughs> first of all, thank you. I, 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 as you you know, and I others that know me, I could talk about my kids all day. I'm extremely proud of uh, who they are becoming. they are not perfect. Uh, I will not use this form to air their dirty laundry in any way, but i will I will definitely do it to sing their praises um but I will say I think one thing at the core for me and 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 I I'm I'm a, a person that tends to want to know what what at the core do I need to help instill and how that is instilled that can take many different forms. But for me at the core of what I've tried to instill in the boys the value of the other person. In in all in any way I can. You know, so when we talk about things like Dating relationships, it's that person is a person of value, not just an object. That person is someone that deserves respect. That per, you know, and in the same way, it's how do you look for the people um, that may not uh, may not have a lot of people around them. You know, I, I every so often, not every day, but every so often, I challenge them. You know, who are the people that aren't having other people come and sit next to them in those passing periods or in those lunch hours. And sometimes they'll roll their eyes, you know, uh, but I still ask them the same question. And I think for me, how, to me, the core value is how do you show value? How do you show the value of the other person? How do you tap into that? And how do you instill that? That's what I've been trying to do with my kids. And, And sometimes I see it, you know, sometimes they're kids and it's hard to show it 100%. Whereas as adults, it's hard to show that 100%. Um,
0: well, and I think that you know when we can we can do that. That means that you know we're thinking about oh well, what if we were that child exactly, and if we had that challenge, how would that impact me? You know, it's like I think the Navajo said, you know, you don't really know someone until you walk a mile into their moccasins. Mm-hmm. And how do we how do we cultivate that in children? Which brings me my to the, my next question for Janae, which is social emotional learning you're, this is one of your expertise i think this is one of the avenues that if it's done correctly can really bring um, these kind this kind of ideas mike that you're that you're sharing with us into the school system in a larger way so anyways your name Go ahead. I'm really anxious to hear what you have to say about.
2: Now this. I appreciate the segue because as Michael was talking, I was thinking that's exactly what he's doing as a parent. He's tapping into their social emotional skills and he's reflecting real life application. So for the for the listeners, social emotional learning is basically um, helping young people develop the internal skills to set and achieve positive goals. Feel and show empathy for others. So that's what I just heard you describe, Michael. Establish and maintain positive relationships. Make responsible decisions. And understand and manage emotions. And one of the most exciting things is, one, I mean, we're all human, right? So all of us, I'm sure that resonated with us. And some of us were probably going, wow, I need a little help in number three. But, you know, these are all skills that we all need. And, again, not only our, our students, but our, our administrators and our teachers, et cetera. But the exciting thing is that research shows that if we are actively creating environments and proactively teaching social emotional skills, and yes, there's the lessons in the classroom, but it's exactly what Michael you described. It's also the talks to and from school, it's you know walking to the the bus drop and a young person saying, I don't want to sit next to her on the bus. I hope let's talk about that, you know, and 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 using these opportunities for just natural um, caring adult and using our influence appropriately. But the exciting thing too is that research has found that social emotional skills can also lead to safer schools. In fact, there was a landmark meta analysis by Dulark and colleagues in 2011, that examined 213 studies of K-12 school-based SEL programs and found that students in the schools that implemented such programs had significant improvements in social emotional skills, such as identifying emotions, perspective taking, and conflict resolution, and few conduct problems. So these schools also reported less aggression and delinquent acts. So showing a direct link between SEL and safer schools, but also um, it can reduce bullying. And so that goes back to my point earlier about one of the major risk factors is that isolation. So all 50 states right now have anti-bullying legislation. And some, you know, every administrator and classroom teacher is actively looking for bullying. Sometimes that presents in really overt ways where an adult can see it. Oftentimes, it presents in ways that an adult doesn't see it. It can be so subtle and so insidious. But if we don't have SEL as a foundation for how we're going to be as community members, then the likelihood of the young, you know, if I don't see something as the classroom teacher happening, but I have students that have the language and have developed the understanding, it's much more likely that there's going to be that Peer accountability. There's going to be that peer interruption. There's going to be that positive peer influence. So we know that that if if a young person is being targeted, and there's bystanders standing by not saying anything, or if other people are using their social influence and saying, "Not get off, Janae. Don't treat it. don't treat Michael like that." You know, that's not what we do. And Janae didn't get shamed, but I just kind of got a reality check, right? Like that is just. So that's valuable for the for both of the students so it's exciting because sel positive outcomes if we know it leads to students that behave in more positive ways and can, can contribute to safer school environments so again it's an investment in this area that brings so many positive outcomes for our young people including exactly what we're talking today which is safer schools
0: and i just want to say i have to do a plug here um, There's a social emotional learning program through Emory University that I'm a senior consultant for, Mm -hmm. and it is completely free. There is not a school district in the United States or other countries that could not contact Emory University C-Learning program and not start learning how to implement C-Learning into their schools with tons of materials from K through 12 that you could start working on today. So if anyone's saying there, oh, we don't have the money for it. I think we don't have the time not to do it or the inclinations, I hope, are strong to do it because this may be life and death. And I mean, you said something I want to bring out too right now, and that is what happens in Ukraine, what happens in Buffalo, what happens in Texas, California, it all impacts us all. We are the larger community, and now with social media, the things that happen happen affect us. There's the vicarious trauma that we have all experienced when we see or even think about the precious children being killed, no matter where that is. And so that's why we have to create programs like this. And I also want to say that these mass shootings, of course, grab our attention again. I said this in the introduction, but if over 4,000 kids died in the U.S. under the age of 19 in 2020, which is when this report just came out um, in April that's too many kids. That's a lot of kids. Mm-hmm. And we've got to figure out a better way of doing it, but it sounds like you're starting to, which I'm, I'm, I'm feeling hopeful, mm-hmm. <laughs> Janae. I'm feeling really hopeful. And I imagine there's more things to be hopeful for. So besides social emotional learning, what are other things that you have learned that we need to be thinking about as school systems, as parents, as grandparents, as teachers, as just the wider community?
2: I I do want to say one thing before I answer your question. Um, Sure. You know, prior to the pandemic, unfortunately, the field of education is, we're understaffed. Um, I showed up at a school the other day, and the principal said, I have 16 staff out today, right? So we know getting substitutes right now is harder than ever. We know that recruiting folks to come work in the education field was was a huge problem prior to the pandemic, especially when you're talking about professionals in the special education realm or science and math. So there were some areas that were even more challenging. So we have young people, the most precious beings in our society, right? Our families are our tr- most treasured souls and we're sending them to school settings. And we, as a community, as a, as a society are not investing in having a workforce that is able to come in and carry the torch for the next generation and so what happens is you know you were just mentioning an amazing program and sometimes it's about resources and and oftentimes it's also about i would say staff power, power. right staff power. Yep. and it's not just about the classroom teacher i mean california we do not have social workers at the same rate as other states we don't have school counselors at the same rate We have needs for other professionals with other skills to work alongside our teachers, because just as we're talking about all the needs for these, we're also raising our academics. And through a resiliency lend, high expectations for academics is also something our young people need, especially people of all backgrounds, to have teachers that believe in their potential. But we ask so much of our teachers. We ask so much of our of our workforce to do this and that and this and that, and I just want to say that we, as a society, so SEL needs to happen, but I also think at a deeper or different level, we have to build um, the workforce and and the respect and appreciation. Bring that back to this profession. Um, It's a hard place to be. I couldn't show up every day and teach 10-year-olds for eight hours. My daughters just amaze me Um, and all the teachers that I've worked with over the years. But um, I think it's a really critical need that we talk about, especially on a front. And when you
0: talk about workforce, you talk about COVID and just all the stresses that were on teachers during COVID. And then you talk about the school violence and the shootings. I mean, how it doesn't affect your fear level. I can imagine if there is a school teacher that let's say has anxiety or depression, and then that happens, I'm calling off today. I can't go in and teach the kids.
2: Right. You know, there's some new um, legislation. Actually, I've lost track of where it is, but I was excited to see that some legislators had proposed some um, ed code at the state level to allow for students to call in absent for a mental health day. So that is just exciting to see that there is a recognition that our mental health is just as critical as our physical health. And we are going to start creating space in the schools. And we need to do that for all of the folks connected to schools, their mental health. To your point, Elaine, if an if a educator is, you know, distressed or is struggling with a personal need and shows up in that classroom, they're not where they need to be for themselves and the students. And we need
0: supports for them. Well, so then that brings me to another question that I think that I'm very interested in. I think you may know that what the question is, is that I know that many of the of the uh, we train many counselors, and many um, teachers with the community resiliency model. And are there any ideas that you have how that can help with this mental health um, challenge that we have right now? And how has it been integrated into the San Mateo County School District?
2: So, Elaine, I was trying my best to rack my brain. I think it was 2018, um, but I had the opportunity. I was overseeing the foster youth services program at the time, so teams that work with students involved in the foster youth system, and I heard about the community resiliency model, and one of the things that um, we often see is the students involved in the foster youth system are overrepresented in disciplinary action, right? so that's very problematic and that kind of goes back to the conversation around exclusion, right? Oftentimes they're losing class time and they're being excluded and they're getting uh, messages about themselves. But that being said, we came down and we had a chance to meet with the trauma and get trained by the Trauma Resource Institute to have trainers be able to work on the front line with the educators, with the para-educators, with the administrators. So as San Mateo County Office of Ed, we started with four, and I think we're well over 25 folks in our county that have been certified to be trainers, and get deployed out to work in our schools, to work with our social workers in our Child and Family Services, to work with all the folks that are you serving. And when I say work with, train them on the community resiliency model and train them how to recognize their needs. What is their nervous system? What, what's going on with their nervous system? And when they notice that they're getting dysregulated, be able to have the knowledge of that. The, tracking, the ability to track it and recognize it, but then to also employ some skills to get re-regulated and then be able to turn to the young people and teach the skills. So we've just, you know, while I'm really happy and I'm proud of the work we've done in the community resiliency model, I'm excited that we have more and more people interested in learning the skill and we have such positive feedback of people who learn it and go home that night and have a different exchange with their own children or their own partners and are... Um, able to be empowered and take that take some control which feels like oftentimes that there's no control right i think i think when violence is happening and we were talking about being impacted sometimes we we feel helpless right and we're we're impacted but then sometimes we do you know we get a little frozen Um, and this helps us stay in a space where we can do something proactive
0: well, those those are sweet words to both Mike and I. What you're saying, of course, and and I and I do think I mean that's my hope. And I don't we don't have the absolute research for this, but I think that if we can stay within those zones of well-being and nourish ourselves, I often hope that would help teachers be able to stay in the profession, yes. so yes. they won't get so burnt out. We do have some pretty good uh, research about this in terms of nursing, but. Oh, my goodness. I cannot believe we just have a few minutes left. Uh, Will you come back? um, Oh, I'd love to. I want to do a part two, please. Okay. Okay. And I'm sure our listeners want to hear more about what we can do. But we have just a, a couple minutes left. And Janae, is there any parting thought to the parents, the teachers, community members that could be listening to this program all over the world? What would you like to say to them in a minute or so?
2: Well, I think I would go to where you and Mike naturally went to on our break, which is who are the young people in my life and what do I need to know about what supports exist in their realms? And how can I, and I don't mean call your school and say, I can't believe you don't have a threat assessment. (laughs) You don't care about kids. (laughs) I mean, you know. How can we be part of getting them going? Exactly. Um, You know, for folks who have, not all parents have the bandwidth capacity or feel welcome in our school settings, which is a problem in itself. But for folks that do, find out what exists and find out how you can support it and how, start being part of this you know whole community wrapped around our schools and our, and our young people.
0: I have to say, this gives me a lot of hope of something we can do as a result of all the things we're seeing around us. And Mike, you got just about a minute to say something profound.
3: <laughs> uh, well, that's all I need. Um, <laughs> no, well, actually, I'm not going to say anything profound other than thank you you to Janae, because I think um, the work that you're doing, that you continue to do in the sphere of influence that you have is astounding. And I am so thankful that uh, we have you in, uh, we get to rub shoulders with you and the work that we get to do as well. And I'm very privileged. I always feel very privileged in being able to to work with the people we get to work with. So thank you for all the work that you're doing um, to, to affect change.
0: I feel like I need to say thank you for your service yeah to all of us i mean i am humbled to be in your presence and and i mean i just can't i i've just learned so much and the wisdom is just pouring out of you oh my goodness so i can't wait to have you come back again well, and, oh, oh good and so for all of our listeners i think we've heard of what else can be true yes it's been a really horrific last couple of months and there's it was a, a bad weekend all over the country but maybe we can be part of these ideas that Janae's bringing to us that we can knock on the door of our school district and say, "Can do we have this? Can I be a part of it? How can I learn about SEL so that I can support this when my child comes home if we have an SEL program? It really needs to be all of us. It needs to be the community. Um, so thank you so much. And until we meet again, this is Elaine miller caris signing off for Resiliency Within, and we'll see you next week.